Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Totally. And it's all about free will. Like, no, no, it's all good. I'm, I'm loving this conversation because it's all about free will. That is, it's beautiful. Um, we have a choice about what we experience. I've seen that in my own relationships when I used to go into conflicts with people in my life and I was like telling a story of they're never going to change. Like they're inherently messed up or even just, you know, they're a jerk. What do I get back? I get a confirmation of that deeply held belief. I get a replay of the same cycle. If I go in and I say, well, in the past, they've done nothing but be a jerk to me, but I'm willing to have a different experience. Like I'm willing, or even I'm willing to be willing. Just open the door a little bit. I'm willing to be shown that this person isn't a total jerk. (laughs) We can bring that energy, right? But just even that spaciousness to say, I'm open to another outcome. Um, And that is ultimately what guides all of my social change work is I look at the stories we're telling. Are we telling just consistently, we're doomed, we're doomed, we're doomed. We're so messed up as a species. Like, can you believe how messed up we are? We're just going to destroy ourselves. And it's like, we can honor that that's a piece of our experience. Just like I honor that people have harmed me. But we can also say, am I willing to tell a story that we've made a mess of it, but we're going to turn it around because we are that capable. We are that strong. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Look Up podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. I just want to take the opportunity to say thank you for listening along. We're now on the 12th episode, and I've got a few more coming your way, one per week over the next four weeks. It's been such a great journey so far, and I'm really appreciative to all of you listeners who keep coming back. Um, and the audience is growing and it's just been really fun. Uh, the best part has been meeting all of these incredible people along the way. I want to give a quick shout out to my sound engineer, Sam Palumbo, also known as Patch Kid. He's the creator of the intro music as well. Check him out uh, on Spotify and other platforms. So on this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Aaron Rose. Uh, Aaron was introduced to me by my previous guest, Jesse Israel, and as you guys heard, Jesse's recommendation shouldn't be ignored. Uh, he's a great guy. And so I immediately agreed to chat with Aaron without really knowing much about him. But Aaron is a motivational speaker, transformational coach for other public speakers, a writer and an educator. In addition to managing inclusive culture design for organizations, Aaron's also an energy worker and a meditation teacher. His work is rooted in an intersectional understanding of power and research-backed principles of behavioral and organizational psychology. I couldn't be happier to have been introduced to him because for me, this was one of the most powerful conversations that I've had to date. He and I explored a broad range of subjects that sometimes bordered on the controversial. We discussed the multidimensionality of our personalities identity politics, free will, manifestation, 
and how we're currently unwinding generations of unconscious social biases. This was the first episode where I really dove into politics, and Aaron and I discussed Marianne Williamson's bid for the Democratic nomination. The show toes the line between objective and subjective learning, and between the physical and the metaphysical. We even discussed experiments in the power of prayer and its ability to transcend our linear understanding of time. And as you can tell, things got a little bit heady, but it was super enjoyable and I learned a ton. I want to share with you before I drop off a few of Aaron's truths. Aaron said that love is the only real thing. Unity is the natural state of humanity. And our earth was once the Garden of Eden. And Aaron holds a belief that we can bring it back to that state. As always, if you have suggestions, if you have comments, please let me know. You can reach out directly to me at mark at thelookuppodcast.com, M-A-R-C at thelookuppodcast.com. Again, thanks for your time. And without further ado, this is Aaron Rose. Aaron Rose, thank you for coming on the Look Up podcast. It's thank um, you for having me to meet you. Uh, as we were just discussing, this is the first time we've seen each other, uh, so it's great. Um, we were connected through my last guest, uh, Jesse Israel from the Big Quiet, and he immediately after talking sent this like raving email about how you and I needed to connect, uh, that you need to be on the Look Up show and. Um, just had nothing but great things to say about you uh, and the work that you did together. Um, so I feel lucky to have you on. And, uh, I think that those listening will feel the same. I'm glad to be here. And I love Jesse and he's, he's got an A plus recommendation in my book. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so I guess like, you know, a good place to start might just be just why don't you tell us and listeners a little bit about yourself and uh and then we can kind of dive into some of what you've been working on lately and go from there yeah absolutely so i'm aaron rose these days i'm a transformational coach for public figures i'm an energy worker and an intuitive i'm a writer i'm a speaker i do inclusive culture design work for organizations and all of that is really coming at this question of why can't humans get along and sort of this these patterns of exclusion and violence that we've all been experiencing for generations and generations that are encoded into us on a DNA level. Um, How do we decondition that within our lifetime? We are called to do that in this moment. Um, And I'm here to support people in answering the call. Everybody um, from the average person who's just like, my boss is driving me crazy, or this person said something homophobic to me on the train, um, to, you know, big public figures who are really um, being called to a higher standard of authenticity and integrity during these moments when, you know, on Instagram, anybody can pile on them and say that um, they've done something messed up. And so a lot of my work has, has, has moved into the online space as well these days, because that is where this identity-based conflict um, is really playing out online and really just, you know, I'm looking at my phone here, just in this little trigger machine um, that we're all carrying around these days. 
Yeah, it's it's such a trigger machine. I mean, you know, I, I saw something interesting. I think it was Jay Shetty posted um, just yesterday, which was trying to get people to stop looking at their phone first thing in the morning. And he was basically like, would you let 100 people just walk into your room right when you wake up? So why are you letting them walk right into your mind? And I think that's I think that's really great. And I think we're starting to see a lot of people, um, you know, really speak out against the um, side effects of, you know, of our cell phones or trigger machines in our pockets. I like the way you just define that. So it's natural. I think it's natural that the work that you've done is kind of extended into the social uh, social media sphere, or the tech sphere, because, you know, it's also like in some ways, I feel like the worst of us is brought out. Um, through, you know, social media platforms. It's just easier to say something digitally than you would to someone's face. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm curious, how do you, how does one, how did you kind of find your way into this work? Mm. And I will say just to, to respond to that piece of it, bringing out the worst of us, I think it brings out the worst and the best of us, like any human relationship and like any relationship that's new where we don't have sort of the the new paradigm of how we're being conscious and intentional about every every aspect. And we haven't quite mapped all of the ways that um, we get pulled away from our most authentic self. I think we're seeing a lot of the worst um, but in other ways, I really think like any, like when you fall in love with someone and you're just like, you're the best, we're doing this. And then three months later, you're like, are you the worst or am I the worst? Or is it both of us? Like we, you know, we end up triggered um, by the people who, who love us most and the people who, who see us and it creates this sort of laboratory for change. So I'm all about using social media, using the online space um, as a tool for creating the life in the world that we want, because it's not going anywhere. Um, and, and to answer this question of how I got into what I, what I do now, it's really been um, quite a, an organically iterative process. I, I say that I sort of came into the world asking the question, why can't we get along? Like, what is happening here? I had this deep internal sense. I was raised in the Catholic Church, um, and I remember even being three, four years old and having this sense of, of almost sort of pieces being out of alignment in my body when I was in a church. Because I was like, okay, you're speaking about love, but I don't really feel that. I'm not seeing that modeled in the behavior of the people around me. I'm feeling actually very constrained, very separated from myself, very separated from other people. Um, and seeing people in the world around me and in my personal life treat each other terribly and not, and just having this sense of like, this doesn't compute. Um, and in the same way that some kids come into the world and they're like, I'm going to Mars or I want to cure cancer, or I just want to make cool stuff or I want to make art. For me, this question of sort of hacking, which is an overused term, but truly getting to the bottom of human hate and the dysfunction that so many people label as our inherent nature, which some part of me said from a very early age, this is not how it's supposed to be. This isn't our natural state. So how do we get back to it? And that led me, you know, the solutions that were first presented to me or the way I first got very engaged was around sort of traditional social justice organizing. Even at 14, 15, I was going around to 
different classrooms in my high school and giving presentations about how to think globally and act locally, um, you know, we would say, okay, there's this big issue happening, hunger, genocide, malaria. What can you, random 15-year-old <laughs> in high school, do about it? Um, how can we raise your awareness but then give you a, a way to take action? And I ended up in very traditional sort of community organizing spaces um, and ultimately sort of transitioned out of those spaces by the time I was in my early 20s because I was feeling really burned out and I was feeling really still, it was like this quest to get to the bottom of injustice wasn't fully satisfied in that space because I was seeing my fellow organizers not treat each other well. I was seeing these sacrifices made where it was like, okay, well, we have to not pay you enough and not feed you enough and not sleep enough because it's the revolution. And some part of me was hearing this chorus of Gandhi and everybody else who's ever said that our ends are a reflection of the means that we use to reach towards them. And so this sense of like, how can I work for social change in a way that makes my life a living, breathing, moment-by-moment -moment expression of the change that I'm seeking to create really drove me into kind of the next more self-defined phase of my work, which has included having titles like life coach, diversity and inclusion educator, activist, writer, spiritual teacher, um, metaphysician, all of the above. And it's still evolving every day. Yeah, there's a lot, um, a lot to unpack in what you just said. I think, um, you know, one thing that you brought to mind is recently kind of the Bernie Sanders campaign and how, you know, they, there was almost this gotcha moment with the Bernie Sanders campaign about how he was not paying his staffers minimum wage. And, you know, the whole thing got resolved. I think in the end, the solution they used was you just have to work fewer hours as a staffer, which is you know, fine, because they unionized, right? So now he's dealing with union negotiations through the process of his election. Maybe he's showing a way forwards, but it is interesting. Um, I think in in kind of like VC parlance, they use the term dog fooding, right? It's like, you know, if you're building a product for someone, build it for yourself. If you're building a, move, a social movement, you need to live and act um, that movement on, on a daily basis. And, you know, I think... I saw one of your posts um, from today, actually, and I'd love to to talk about it, about sharing authentically, mm -hmm. um, you know, and how most people perceive sharing authentically online to be about this kind of almost like, uh, and I'm guilty of this as well. It's like when I, when I say I'm being authentic, it's only when I'm posting these like almost like self-deprecating, um, you know, uh, uh, posts or, you know, just like the it's easier for me to, to be quote unquote vulnerable about, you know, flaws than to be like, I'm sitting in my power. So I really liked you kind of saying, Hey, I'm being authentic and I'm sitting in my power, you know, and I'm feeling strong and, and great. And I want to share that with you as well and not shying away from that. And I think, you know, again, that's, that's a form of acting, acting out what you speak as well. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that resonated with you. And I think, you know, everybody, we're such multidimensional, multifaceted beings that authenticity, your authenticity growth edge one day may be that vulnerable post. That's definitely 
um, a, an axis along which I'm continuing to sort of push myself and say, where am I filtering my life because of some made up idea of the critique that might come and how might some aspect, some previously unacknowledged aspect of me benefit from me acknowledging myself through sharing it with the world, not through posting it and saying, okay, I'll feel validated when I have, you know, 300 likes or whatever, but saying, how can I give myself the gift of the recognition of, of creating in some ways sort of a piece of art on Instagram about what I'm experiencing in a more vulnerable way. Um, but then also seeing, you know, there's, there's this sense, you know, one of my least favorite phrases that the kids these days are saying is some version of I'm trash or that person's trash or this sort of way that we joke about our inadequacy. And it's this paradoxical balance, like any truth where, you know, we do have to acknowledge that we're deeply flawed human beings on some level and we're always striving to be better and we're cleaning up, I don't know, thousands of generations of not treating each other well through the laboratory of our own lives in this lifetime. So there's a lot of mess, but there's also a lot of beauty and there's a lot of glory and there's a lot of pride that we can have um, in being and being powerful and in redefining power. It's not power over, it's power with. It's I shine and you shine, we get to shine together. Completely. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting thinking about kind of, you know, you do a lot of work with the institutionalization of some of these, um, these constructs, these social ideas. Um, I'd love if you could kind of talk a little bit about that you know, you just kind of touched on the tip of the iceberg with it. You know, as you mentioned, in this lifetime, we're all trying to almost unwind thousands of years of, pro of social programming that gets passed down. What work are you doing right now? Um, you know, and how how is that process moving forward as far as helping individuals unwind these these unconscious biases? So it's happening in every moment across many different axes. The the place where the work is happening more in an institutional way for me right now is with my corporate clients or just my organizational clients who are looking at, okay, you know, and I work with a lot of startups who are now sort of former startups who are now in the sort of 150 plus employee range where they built really, really, really fast based on their existing networks. And they're sort of looking around and they're saying, okay, what, what culture do we really want to be having here? And actually, we're already playing out our biases on each other. We're already big enough to see the big gaps and who's here, who's being represented, who's being given the, the space to lead and, and create. And so um, there's that piece working with organizations. And then there's really, you know, working with, with individuals and understanding whether that's an individual who has, who's one person, but with a million Instagram followers. And so is sort of this human megaphone um, to the masses or, you know, other folks who are following me on Instagram or coming to my public events who are really human beings without a big public platform, but are navigating the arena of social change in their life, which is their intimate relationships, which is ultimately where it starts for all of us. And so the way that I navigate the work is this balance between really looking at the laws of metaphysics, the, the unseen laws that govern our universe and understanding that anything that's happening outside is happening inside. 
So how can I use that as sort of medicine to apply it to any identity-based breakdown that's happening? So for example, I had a client who came to me, she was in the wellness space, spirituality space, and she said, I'm really afraid that people are going to tell me that I'm racist or that I'm homophobic because I don't have, um, I mostly have white straight people on my platform. And it's not that I don't love those people, but for whatever reason, my platform is, is really kind of narrow in its representation. And she was identifying that as a problem for herself and wanting to work on it. And she was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Like, I put it out there. I invite people to, to share and they don't want to be part of my community. And what we did was go into a subconscious hypnotic state. Even literally, you can do this in 30 seconds and it makes a difference to go in and to say, First of all, what stories from your childhood and also your sort of ancestry, your the the people who came before you, are you still running within yourself that are saying like what what would you have to believe to be true in order to be experiencing this? Oh, it's not safe to be in communities with people who look differently than me. I won't receive love, I won't receive praise, I won't get what I need if I am intimate and close with people who are different than me um, and tracing those back and starting to bring the light of truth um, in, in a variety of different ways to those stories and saying, okay, how can I affirm that the truth of my human experience is actually that it's safe to be myself with people who don't look like me. And the second piece that we did in that session was we did a loving kindness meditation. We dropped visually from the mind into the heart, seeing the light and the strength there and sending that love out to the people that she was experiencing this sort of perceived conflict with and sending them love and just saying, may you be happy, may you be safe. And in the same way that we like dig into a, a muscle knot, it's like you energetically kind of push through this feeling of block, this feeling of constriction related to a certain group of people and it was this surrender. It wasn't we're doing this so that. It was like we're doing this to restore love to this situation. Um, that, was the, that was the pure intention. Um, and within 24 hours, I had an email from her saying, oh, my God, out of nowhere, five different people reached out asking if they could contribute to my site. And they're all people of color, LGBTQ people, et cetera. And it was like as soon as she released that internal block and did a bit of that work to clear that subconscious patterning from within her, everything that she was calling in, everything that was a match to who she truly is as a human just came pouring on in. Um, it just showed up. And the third piece, in addition to kind of that, the identifying the, the, the unloving, the fearful beliefs um, and doing, doing this sort of energetic work that I just described, this sending of the love, is this third piece of amends making and looking at, okay, if I actually want to be someone who is in a more diverse community, um, where do I need to repair anything from my past? You know, even if it's that when I was 10, I like laughed at a homophobic joke. <laughs> what, what do I need to do to go back? Um, and whether that's an apology to someone or truly just feeling into the remorse and, and, and letting it go, or even saying, how can I make a living amends? What do I need to do if we're talking about LGBTQ issues here, um, as we were with this client? What do I need to do to better support that community? What support are they asking for in this moment? And so it's sort of this balance between 
the external actions. And most people who are looking at identity-based stuff or managing PR for, <laughs> or sort of reputation management for public figures at this point, it's all about the external. This is the best practice. Say this, do this. But if we don't address what's happening on an internal level, we're just going to keep creating the same cycle over and over and over again. So there's a lot of power. My work completely changed when I started to really understand that everything that's happening outside is first happening inside. And that's where we have to, that's where we have to pull it out at the root. Mm. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit, because earlier you mentioned, um, I think what you described as kind of the law, some, some laws of metaphysics. And, you know, now I'm, what I'm hearing you say, especially in this anecdote, is that when we change our internal, it has a powerful, almost magic impact on our external. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, this is, you know, this is as old as time or human memory, because that's what prayer is. Exactly. Right. And, and we've always been you know, as far as we've been, as long as we can remember through the history of human culture, there's been some element of, of prayer or, um, you know, offering made. Uh, and I guess we recognize the subconscious power of, of that. So I'd love to hear your thought. But of course, we live in this, you know, the flip side is we live in this time in this time period where, you know, we are so fundamentally dependent on on science um, and kind of that Western knowledge to prove that these this metaphysics is true that there are going to be you know listeners that will be skeptical of some of these concepts and i'm sure you come across that as well and i you know i often hesitate to even describe my you know my beliefs on on the power of of manifestation and and what i've experienced when i've changed my internal um slightly similar situation to you know your client in that experience in that example so you know, long-winded way of saying, would love to hear your thoughts on kind of these metaphysical rules, or at least one of them about internal reflecting external and vice versa. Mm. Yeah, there's so much that you said there, and and I I identify and I and I resonate with that sense of, you know, how people receive this information right now, and this sense of this skepticism, seeing it as woo-woo, seeing it as not real, seeing it as, as it is not grounded. It's very sort of masculine critique in some ways, which is not about gender. It's just about that masculine polarity of facts and action and, and logic. Um, and so I, I find myself, and I, I am a logical person, and that is actually what I love the most about what I've come to understand about the world is that it, it just makes sense, right? It, 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 there is this deep mathematical logic to... Um, to the universe, right? Scientists are even beginning to map what the space between you and me looks like, how it how it constructs itself, how it has these sacred geometry patterns that we see mimicked um, all throughout nature. And so I love to be on a quest for, I, I love to have that balance, right? To, and to look for the research that, that, that shows people. So we have these studies now that show that when large groups of people gather together and meditate, violent crime rates go down in the surrounding area. Wow. <laughs> which is just so amazing. Where were these studies done or like? It's, it's been, I think the study that's coming to mind was in Washington DC in the 1990s. Um, and, you know, 
I am. I, I, I reach for the research and I also am not so versed in the research lingo that I can justify, you know, is it double blind? How many times was it validated? I'm not sure, but I know in my heart that when people drop into their hearts with a positive intention, it changes the world around us because there's no such thing as neutrality either. Like either you're thinking a loving thought or you're thinking a fearful thought. Um, either you're wishing for the removal of a negative stimuli or you're wishing for the introduction of a positive stimuli. And so, you know, a lot of it is about taking our power back as humans, taking back that, that, that conscious power. Um, and a study that I, that I'll share about, about prayer as well. Like prayer is that loaded word. I mean, I was raised in the Catholic church and I spent a lot of time just shunning anything that had that flavor of it. But my quest for freedom and for liberation has brought me to a place where I'm like, you don't get to take prayer from me. You don't get to take grace from me. You don't get to take wonder and a connection to a sense of something greater and, and to a, a, a prime creator or the universe, however you think about it. You don't get, you don't get to take that from me. Because it is what's true. It's just been distorted in various ways. So I love, I love prayer. In some ways, what I describe with a loving kindness meditation is just prayer, right? It is just dropping into your heart and sending a loving thought to someone else. Um, there's a study that some people, you know, there's all kinds of critiques of it, but there was a study that captivated me on the level of the imagination about people who basically there was a group of people who were sick. They all had sepsis. They were in the hospital. Um, and there was a group of people who they, they did a study praying for these people. And so some people um, who were sick were assigned someone to pray for them and some people were not. And what they found is that the people who were prayed for um, experienced much greater rates um, of recovery. They had a higher survival rate and all of that. And we have a couple of studies now that show that praying for people in dire situations does shift the outcome. But the kicker with this study is that the people who were sick were in the past and the people who were praying were in the future. They randomly scrambled people's names from a couple of years before and then assigned randomly people who had, ha who had been sick to be prayed for. Um, and the people who were prayed for did have better outcomes. And so it shows us, it's like, it boggles the mind to describe it a little bit, but basically the people who were prayed for five years after they were sick got better at a much higher rate than the people who were not prayed for, which shows us. They had already, they had already gotten better before they were prayed for, or they got better after they were prayed for. They had already gotten better. So it's sort of like this whole group of people was sick they they had their outcome and then it was completely random who was assigned to be prayed for as this experiment retroactively oh interesting to see like if prayer could penetrate the fourth dimension of time exactly exactly and so it, it to me it it's it's a poetic illustration of the illusion of time right we're living in a linear time situation but you know from whether it's the buddhist saying that um, you know, when you, when you resolve your karma, you heal it seven generations back and seven generations forward or ep epigeneticists talking about clearing generational trauma from our cells. Um, it's, yeah, you sent me down a rabbit hole Yeah, because, you know, 
Because I fundamentally, and as you described in my heart center, believe in, you know, certain concepts, but there's also this like, so you sent me down the rabbit hole of epigenetics. That's what I'm going to say. Great. Let's go. Up, well, you know, I'm going to bring up one, one kind of woo study that's, that's often described. That's not epigenetics because it's frustrating to me as someone that lives on kind of the, lives on kind of the, the uh, connection between the heart and the mind. And sometimes leans a lot more kind of like in that masculine, as you described, like logical facts-based and other times it's like, I want to believe, I do believe, you know, and I experience magic. You know, this one experiment, it's the experiment of the gentleman that used to talk to his water and he would say nice things to his water. Dr. Emoto. Yeah. And the water molecules would change. And, you know, this is often quoted in kind of, you know, spiritual communities as the power of prayer and the power of, of words and thought patterns and intention. But I, I feel like there's also equal, you know, equal studies on the other side that are like, it's because there was an N of one, you know, and they're attacking the scientific rigor of this man's study and it hasn't been able to be replicated. And then I'm like, okay, well, it hasn't been able to be replicated because potentially because now you're putting, um, you know, you're putting uh, this rational wrapper um, in a lab setting around something that's heart and love centered so like yes this man that was truly putting love and and compassion into his water into his water was actually changing the chemical composition but then people that were trying to prove it you know maybe there was something missing that we couldn't understand that's the heart-centered mark trying to be trying to justify but the point being is there's all this like i hate to use this word like pseudoscience out there in the spiritual community and i think that in order for us to penetrate, um, you know, through to as many people as possible, we also need to be open to their skepticism. So uh, that's a long-winded way of saying I went down this rabbit hole of epigenetics and I was like, okay, like I am a, a sec- third generation um, descendant of Holocaust survivors. My mother's um, great aunts met in Auschwitz. They, um, they introduced my each of their siblings, my grandfather and my grandmother, who then had my mother. And I believe that there is trauma that's been passed down through, you know, through the generations um, either, you know, and I believe that it's more than just a story that's been told or cultural. There's also like traits, you know, whether it be excess anxiety or fears or, or guilt and shame and things like that. Well, survivor guilt as well, because that's part of PTSD. I, I fundamentally believe that. So I want to believe this. So I started looking up at, you know, going down the epigenetics rabbit hole and it was encouraging, you know, some study like the Holocaust studies that had been done again, had been criticized because it was too small of a population from a scientific perspective to really prove anything. But now they're starting to have studies coming out um, for animals, animal testing that is really proving this. Anyways, I'm going to stop there because I am kind of blabbering. I want to give you an opportunity to speak on this, but it's something I often go back and forth on mm. um, when it comes to like the desire to believe and be inspired um, and imaginative, and then also kind of the perception of wanting to be logical and rational as well. I love this conversation. I love how deep we're going um, because this is this is the stuff I really love to speak about. And so the first thing that I want to sort of anchor in is that as human beings, we have been taught to outsource our intuition to other things. 
we have a perfectly beautiful guidance system within us um, that is our gut, that is our heart. And so whenever we're speaking about these concepts, I always like to say to people, I'm not here to convince you. Um, and I truly want you to let your experience be your guide. So anybody who's listening, who's sort of side-eyeing the conversation or, you know, half side-eyeing, but half like, ooh, in- interesting, intriguing, let your experience be your guide. You know, I have the results that I have with my clients um, and and their reaction is what tells me that what I'm doing makes a difference, right? When we go in and we say, okay, you know, to a, a major public figure who's continuously getting called out on social media and we say, okay, what part of you still believes that you deserve to be punished and humiliated? What, where did that pattern come from? Um, what part of you still believes that it's only possible to be successful for a certain period of time? Um, what part of you believes that if people saw who you really were, that they wouldn't love you? Um, and when we go to that root and we, and, we, and we dig into the patterning around defensiveness, the patterning around humiliation, the patterning around shame, and we clear it through a variety of techniques, the, the external experience changes in ways that is miraculous. And it often, you know, it changes in a moment and it often can take time as well. Um, and so I just want to sort of anchor that in that um, if there's skepticism, it's like honor where you're at um, and, and continue to take a chance on new ideas if you feel compelled, if you're willing to have a new experience. That's the other thing I say to people is, how, what have you been doing so far? What outcomes have that, has that led to in your life? What do you truly want to experience in your life? Okay, more abundance, more ease, more connection, you know, world peace within our lifetimes, the eradication of climate change, all of it. How, what results have you been getting with what you're doing so far? And not in a way of blaming and shaming, but saying, okay, would I be willing to consider a, something completely different that might shift my experience? Would I be willing to try that on? And so I like to offer that um, to people first, just to, just to really get us into a place of sovereignty and empowerment with all of this. Um, I love the Dr. Emoto study, um, which is for those of you listening, you can look it up. Um, but basically, yeah, the water that he spoke lovingly to made all these beautiful crystals, the water that he spoke very negatively to and was like, I hate you, um, started to get moldy and gross. And the water that he neglected that he didn't do anything to that he like cold shouldered was the worst. It was the grossest. Um, and you know, as human beings, whatever percentage we are, it's like at least 70%, um, water that study has been used to sort of, to, to, to really validate this idea that that our intention does create um, the the world that we're in and in terms of whether or not that study is replicable people do it every day in their own homes right they do it with plants I love you plant one I hate you plant two and they watch the the plant two die and they watch the plant one grow and so an intention is everything so if i'm going into a study and i my intention is to invalidate dr emoto the universe is like radio let's uh, create the circumstances in which we invalidate that theory just in the same way that you when you go into an argument and you're like there's no way this person's going to convince me like they're wrong 
or they're an, they're an asshole. And you mentioned, and then you you mentioned get, hypnotism earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've had experience with hypnotists, like in group settings that they say this up front. They're like, if you are not open to being hypnotized, I can't hypnotize you, which is kind of interesting as well. Um, totally. And it's all about free will. Like, no, no, it's all good. I'm, I'm loving this conversation because it's all about free will. That is, it's beautiful. Um, we have a choice about what we experience. I've seen that in my own relationships. When I used to go into conflicts with people in my life and I was like telling a story of they're never going to change. Like they're inherently messed up or even just, you know, they're a jerk. What do I get back? I get a confirmation of that deeply held belief. I get a replay of the same cycle. If I go in and I say, well, in the past, they've done nothing but be a jerk to me, but I'm willing to have a different experience. Like I'm willing, or even I'm willing to be willing. Just open the door a little bit. I'm willing to be shown that this person isn't a total jerk. <laughs> we can bring that energy, right? But just even that spaciousness to say, I'm open to another outcome. Um, and that is ultimately what guides all of my social change work is I look at the stories we're telling. Are we telling just consistently, we're doomed, we're doomed, we're doomed. We're so messed up as a species. Like, can you believe how messed up we are? We're just going to destroy ourselves. And it's like, we can honor that that's a piece of our experience, just like I honor that people have harmed me. But we can also say, am I willing to tell a story that we've made a mess of it, but we're going to turn it around because we are that capable. We are that strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a fascinating subject on the power of manifestation um, on, you know, the, the circular nature of our internal and external worlds, um, how the external affects the internal, but vice versa as well, and kind of on and on and on. And, you know, I, I, I always come back to kind of the practice of yoga um, because that's kind of what I've been trained in when it comes to this the spiritual sciences and, and, um, you know, yoga really is fundamentally, in my opinion, a science of self with an N of N equal one over a core, a certain, you know, course of time, an individual's lifetime or multiple lifetimes or, and, or lineage or whatever. And what I find really fascinating is, you know, when science proves some of the, you know, these ancient experiential truths, um, you know, one, one, um, factor I like to point to is if you look at the chakra system that the the yoga practitioners of the past have described without cutting people open they the chakra centers um, most of them have a physical corollary in bundles of nerve endings in those regions and also you know gl the glandular system aligns really really well with the with the chakras so your seventh chakra at the top of your head is your pineal gland which is the gland that regulates the pituitary gland which is your sixth chakra or your third eye in between your eyebrows and that gland is the gland that regulates all of the other glands in your body including your thyroid gland which is at your fifth chakra in your throat and of course you have your heart and the vagus nerve which aren't your glands but that's one chakra and the vagus nerve or the vagus nerve anyways so you know, one one mission that I have in this life and one reason why I do this this show, I think, is I really want to help create a language 
that can show people, individuals that are rational, intelligent, and believe themselves to be so, that are not open to this sort of practice or thinking, um, that there is logic behind it and that there, there is evidence behind it. Um, and maybe that experiential evidence is enough or should be enough, as you said. Let's try it out. You know, just have the willingness to be willing and open the door and see what happens. But I also, in this kind of journey, you know, that wanting to, I'm more along the lines of, of wanting to help convince. Whereas you're saying, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm saying, no, I, I want to help convince people that this stuff is real, that magic is real. Because, yeah. because there is a sense of magic and wonder in this, in this world, and in this universe, and I've experienced it. And so, you know, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's, an in, it's interesting. It's a, it's a fascinating kind of uh, world that we're living in. The podcast universe in particular has like the entire spectrum Completely. Well, and, and what I'll throw in there too is like from one level, and I, I work in sort of a multidimensional, taking many perspectives. From one perspective, I do want to convince people. It's literally my entire life's mission to heal the separation of humanity through reconnecting us with our power, through re-inspiring people to see the wonder and the beauty of this world, to take it seriously, to take themselves seriously, to come back to their free will power, and to realize that we are all collectively co-creating the experience that we're having. Um, but I know if I, as a metaphysician, right, if I bring the energy of the only acceptable outcome is that I watch you pair it back to me what I've just said to you, or I see you change in X amount of time, um, then that's strangling the wonder and the magic out of it. It's disrespecting people's free will. And so, you know, I really try to live my life as like, as a son, right. As a, as a, um, as a living, breathing example where my life is an invitation to, um, to get curious about these subjects, to have a, a change in experience. And, and I do push people, every once in a while, but only when there's already a willingness, only when we're already in a conversation. Um, because I also trust that like, you know, I didn't have all of these awarenesses 10 years ago. And it was through my own path of following my own intuition and my own divine moments of grace that I got to the awareness that I have now. And it means so much to me because it's my experience. And so I, um, and anytime someone tried to beat me over the head with something, that's a little, that's the sort of tainted experience along the path, even if there was truth in what they were saying. So I do want to convince people. And also, um, I, I have to respect the, the laws of, of how this thing works and, and allow people to have their experience in their, um, in their own unique timing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I'm, I'm inspired by, um, you know, your description of yourself as kind of multidimensional. And I think that bringing it back to some of the work that you do with these public personas is the problem of one of the problems of being a public figure is that um, oftentimes it is really challenging to break through to your audience or to the world as a multidimensional character. Um, you know, individuals get typecasted 
whether it be in a movie or in life. And, you know, I actually was just listening to another podcast um, with a gentleman named Eric Weinstein, um, who was describing Madonna and David Bowie as two incredible artists that were able to reinvent themselves regularly and say, you know, that Madonna from the 80s, from the early 80s was like your Madonna and you could keep it and that's great, but I need to keep moving forward and like mid 80s Madonna is different and whatever. Um, and so, you know, I've been experiencing this personally as well. Uh, you know, after this, this fire documentary, um, my Instagram following took off, which was an ironic twist because I was speaking out against influencer culture in some ways in my participation in that documentary. And then they showed a post of something that I, I did from the island that I kept up on my feed because I had nothing to hide and people were intrigued by that. And um, it's been fascinating because I was like, okay, I have this little platform. And then I, in some ways, reacted to it. And that was part of the inception of this podcast. But I felt like this was one of the greatest gifts that I could give back, sharing people like you in these conversations, um, you know, with this new audience. And what's been fascinating as well is a couple of things. One is watching as I've shared more of my, my truths and what interests me, watching those numbers actually peak and then decline. Um, and it, there's nothing, there was nothing more painful at the beginning of like all of a sudden watching, you know, a thousand people unfollow me after a post because they didn't, they just didn't care. As you said, I felt like the neglected water more than the disliked water even. And that was really interesting. Um, and you know, like going back to the what I've always been posting on Instagram as well, which is like I love posting pictures of traveling somewhere and feeling like I can't post that unless I'm also making a claim about social media at the same time, right? And so throwing the baby out with the bathwater in some way. So that's been an interesting personal exploration of of that multidimensionality that you describe and how challenging it is as a quote unquote public figure because I'm really not that, but um. But yeah, I don't know. It's cool. I like I like the way you describe things. Yeah, thank you. And and that's to me like I'm just sort of laughing over here because that what what laughing at at the wonder of, of the world like you displayed such a release of attachment around social media. You were like, I'm calling this stuff out. I'm being me. And the universe is like, boom, great. We have a non-attached individual here. You know, you're not like, I need the, the 30,000 followers. And then all of a sudden there they are, um, which is, which is really funny. And you know what I always, there's a couple of quotes that came to mind. One is from Audre Lorde, um, famous black feminist scholar, um, who says nothing that I accept fully about myself can be used to diminish me. And then pairing that um, with this A Course in Miracles quote, the metaphysical text, A Course in Miracles, in my defenselessness, my safety lies. And understanding that anytime we're trying to convince people to accept us, to love us, to see a certain thing, um, it we're, ener we, we're energetically repelling people. And so when I work with public figures, we look at, okay, what parts of you do you feel like are not being seen here? How can we anchor those in your life external of the public persona, right? How can you be seen as the travel guy and the guy with the cute kids and the, um, you know, mad scientist doc from back to the future, like tinkering in your lab and 
the baseball fan or whatever, all these different things, um, how can we anchor those within you so that you're not seeking primary validation from your community about it? And then it frees you up to do the David Bowie thing and the Madonna thing of just being like, I literally don't care if you keep following me. I just have to be me. And people are magnetized to that authenticity. So it's paradoxical um, in some ways. Absolutely. And I've actually started speaking of like flipping the internal, you know, internal conversation and how it affects the external. It's almost the unfollows have stalled when I decided I'm actually going to get excited when people unfollow me, when I'm posting things that I care about. I was like, I'm just going to see how low I can go from here, you know, because it's, I, I expected it in some ways because most people like, it was just a curiosity about seeing one photo and fire now is like eight months ago, right? Like the media, the media machine moves really quickly. Nobody cares about that anymore, which is, which is fine with me. Um, but so I created this game of like, okay, I'm just going to post and see for myself, you know, how many hundred people I can lose at a time. And then all of a sudden it like stopped for, for the time being, which was cool. Um, I also want, I, I was bring, thinking before of, um, you know, we were talking about kind of, again, multidimensionality, you know, like I, I'm, I'm here having a conversation with you. And really enjoying it, and I've and I've read some of some of um, what you what you post and some of the work that you do with the Me Too movement, um, and we're talking about some of this you know spiritual um, side of the world. And then I also you know I love listening to say like a Sam Harris, who is completely you know attacked by um, in my opinion by a lot of people um, on the left political, you know, left spectrum when I don't think he is really a far right guy at all or a right wing guy at all. And he would talk about identity politics and science. And so would this Eric Weinstein guy who I just started listening to. But then I'm, I'm you know, bridge, I'm not bridging the gap, but I'm also I have one foot in this other community. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's like, I think we, I think I really love that you encourage people to to be multidimensional. But like, what what do you think about that? Like, are you are you someone that thinks that Sam Harris is uh, is is like attacking um, um, maybe the you know the Muslim community or the Black community or the trans community or, or whatever? Um, I don't know. What, what are what are your thoughts there? It's a great question, and I have like a, a half. I have completed Walt Whitman quote in my head from Leaves of Grass where he says something like, am I confusing? Well, very well then, I'm confusing. Uh, when he's talking about, you know, I contain multitudes. It's not confusing, he says something else, but uh, people can go explore it on their own. Um, so, I'm of the belief that left or right people with strong opinions about what we're supposed to do about this whole identity conflict thing are all fundamentally responding to the same core sense of human bafflement about our amnesia, about our unity, right? So you have people, and I'm not super, I don't want to speak super directly to Sam Harris because I haven't been up to date on exactly what he's saying, but energetically what I feel from him and 
you know, even someone like Jordan Peterson or um, these these sort of hyper rationalist people who are just like it's highly illogical that that you would require me to treat you in a different way based on um, your identities. They're responding to a deep core sense of unity of the fact that the the ways that we separate each other um, are true about this current plane of human existence, but don't speak to the ultimate truth of our experience, which is that there is so much more that unites us, even in this human realm, than there is that divides us. And this sense of almost existential, it's almost like an itch, you know, it's like an itch you can't scratch, this existential angst of like, why are we more divided now and then more divided and now you have more words for what you want me to call you and I feel more separate from you and like the days of just walking down the street and saying howdy to someone are gone (laughs) Um, and so I see them on that side and then I see folks who you know they might describe as social justice warriors I used to be one of them um, who are saying you know, you need to get your vocabulary right. You need to take these specific actions. You need to validate me in this specific way. They are also responding to that same existential confusion and and, and rage and sadness about our separation. They're saying, why won't you see me as me, right? Why won't you see, and by seeing me as me, you're, you're seeing me as an equal, right? Because I see you. Right. So I need you to see me as me. And so it's sort of like this, this two sides of the same coin. Um, and from my perspective, people who are really raging against identity politics right now, you know, I want to know who their ancestors were and who they were in a past life, because um, there's, I find that it's like, we need to touch base with the diversity. We have to fully validate people for their authentic self-expression. We have to look at What's what trauma, what encodement am I carrying me as a white man? What what's the legacy of people who have looked like me and what they've done to, let's just say, black women? Um, And how can I actually fully, fully, fully repair that by looking at black women in my life and saying, I honor your pain and I'm not going to repeat the autopilot where I say that your pain is invalid and that you're crazy. Right. And so these moments where we can, but, but where people get stuck is like, okay, are you just going to validate people's pain forever? Well, from one perspective, yes, that's what it means to be human is to not turn away from each other, no matter what's going on. But from another perspective, I see the alchemical power of just giving people that moment of witnessing and looking at how can I make a living amends to, to groups of people that I've been held in separation from. Um, how can I release the idea that our well-being is a, is a zero-sum game? How can I release that from my body? Um, and then we get to the unity. <laughs> then we can just actually get to, okay, you know, you're, you're white, you know, they're black, I'm gay, you're straight, whatever it might be, and get to other things that we love, like watching sunsets and talking about quantum physics Um, but, but we, if we, and if we continue to, to reject the effect without looking at the cause, it's like, I don't want all these angry people about who are angry about identity. 
It's like, okay, well, we have to look at the, the cause of that. We have to go back and mend that. And then we're going to, you know, all those radio transmitters sending out that separation from within us, from, you know, within our world, they're going to turn off and we're actually going to be able to experience what we want. So I look forward to, to continuing to be in conversation with and actually work specifically with guys like Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson because they're, they're not wrong <laughs> from one perspective, but they have an invitation to connect with their humanity in a way that they're not. Well, I, I think there's a couple of things there because the, the one thing I do want to say is like I listened, I have listened to Sam Harris for a long time, longer before I listened to Jordan Peterson. And I do think that they are very different. Um, and that's why they're always, they're often going head to head these days. And it's funny because they attract similar audiences and, you know, I'm, I'm, potentially a white male it could be considered a brown male I, I don't know um and you know i so i i have my own sets of, of privileges that i've i've been given in life and i come from a middle class family and never needed anything but i actually i i wouldn't even group um sam and jordan together i would say like when i hear sam harris speak it's more just like it's more it's more neutral even than jordan peterson yeah you know jordan peterson's going after um, a certain, you know, population, whereas Sam, I think is more just feeling under attack by, you know, it's like, I, I downloaded his, his meditation app, waking up, I used it. I mentioned it in a consciousness group that I started and a very good friend of mine was like, I'm not going to download an app from this anti-Muslim, you know, dude. And I'm like, but I don't see that guy. You know, I see the dude that's dropping in with himself on a daily basis and really cares about mindfulness and staying neutral and calm and whatnot. Um, I wanted, yeah, I mean, I again, with that, that multidimensionality. And, and I will say, you know, for anybody listening, um, I haven't listened, I, I haven't been following Sam um, as closely as I've been following Jordan. So I don't intend to, to, to create any comparison where there or, or ex- excessively overlap the Venn diagram. Um, but yeah, if I, if, if he's experiencing, you know, getting critiqued for being anti-Muslim, I would say, okay, Let's go in there. Like, where's that persecution programming um, <laughs> where, where, you're, where you're programmed to be persecuted and you're also programmed to not witness people um, in their persecution um, and, and clear, clear that out so that, um, so that that sticking point doesn't exist for him and for anybody that he's coming into contact with anymore. You know, I'm, I'm drawn to a couple, of, a couple of things that I'd like to kind of keep going down this little rabbit hole with you on. Um, I, I hopefully I can take note on one of them. I also want to get back to A Course in Miracles because Marianne Williamson's A Return to Love, which I think you listed as one of your top five favorite books of all time, or maybe a runner, at least a runner up, like changed the game for me. It changed my life. And, um, but by the way, I don't think I'd vote for her for president of the United States. So that's a different story. And we can talk about that as well. Um, I don't know how much time you have, but, uh, you know, I guess you, you know, I, I consider myself like some people have described, uh, this concept of a snag, a sensitive new age guy. It's like a, it's like a derogatory comment towards like someone that's like both like a bro coming from like bro culture and also like kind of navigating this new world that we came up in of, you know, of, again, I quote unquote identity politics of, you know, recognizing that we have white privilege and, and um, kind of navigating this 
the fine line between wanting to do the right thing and also wanting to show up as, as you know, a man in our own power um, without shame and guilt. And so, you know, I noticed one of the modules that you host and what some of the work that you do is with, is with men, um, you know, uh, specifically in the, in the Me Too age. Um, and I wanted to just, you know, get, get your thoughts on that. Like specifically, what is the line between recognition and awareness and saying, I see you, you know, black woman that has experienced generations and lifetimes of, of persecution at the hands of other white men without saying, you know, I, I'm guilty of this because I was born a certain way because the two concepts kind of to me giving that forgiveness to someone else but not to yourself to ourselves is also multi-dimensional and contradictory so just curious how you navigate that that line yeah so what i would say here is that in some a course in miracle says a miracle can occur right in any moment in any instant so we can have a complete change of perception and experience in a moment and often, you know, but also change is a spiral in some ways. A Course in Miracles does, does not say that, but I say that. Change is a spiral. So, you know, we may have a moment of clarity and relief and feel clear, and then it comes back around again. So um, I don't want to give give the idea that, 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 we're, that we're just like curing sexism and racism overnight, but... Um, but we can experience really big shifts in small periods of time. What I would say is that um, it's this paradox where where I see men needing both permission to own their masculine power much, much more and to actually reclaim a healthy masculine archetype um, and also getting more comfortable with why they feel so much guilt and shame. Because the systems that have set us up here, patriarchy, white supremacy, all of that, they harm, they harm you whether or not you're on the oppressor side or the oppressed side. And men are carrying, I mean, let's just even talk about the legacy of war and the rage, the existential rage that we carry within us of being sent somewhere being told it was for the right reason and doing horrible, horrible things that were just a violation of our humanity and everybody else's. And then in, in some cases to realize it, especially in an American context, like was that war even necessary? Um, and, and was it necessary to see that other person as an enemy? And so there's men have a lot of grief and we do have a lot of shame. We do have, you know, the shame of, of walking into a room and people saying, oh, you know, F all men. Um, that shame signature tracks back to a deep, deep collective shame of not being able to protect their families, of, um, of seeing violence done, of committing violence, of feeling bewilderingly separate from their essential nature and from everybody else while doing the thing that was socially coded as the way to be the right kind of man. And so the bewilderment even of itself, this confusion of like, how do I do this? How do I become the right kind of person? The right kind of man is, is part of the healing is letting that confusion pass through your body um, and not shying away from 
practices that allow you to release grief and shame and anger. And there's a balance between accepting blame in the moment um, versus understanding that like maybe actually if we were to roll the tape, you didn't do anything to that specific person, but the two of you are playing out a dynamic where someone experiences harm and you do nothing about it. Um, and you have a chance to, um, to validate the pain, um, and to not shy away from the pain that's showing up within you seeing even a moment where you're like, I don't know what you want me to do as a moment of alchemical healing, um, where you can look at how many times have I felt within my lineage, this confusion about what to do as a man. And how can I just be present to that, be the, the witness and the observer to this pattern? Um, and understanding, too, that actually the more we lean into connection, the more free we get. And so even this idea that like there's there has to be an objective way to understand how wrong you were and how right they are is still feeding this zero-sum mentality that says that like we can't all experience connection and ease at the same time and that someone has to be wrong. Um, and we have the opportunity to be brave enough to lean into greater love no matter where we fall along the spectrum. But those of us who have more quote unquote privilege material access within the bodies that we're in right now, I do see that we're called to be the one who takes the first step, who shifts the dynamic to create the context in which someone who's used to being harmed by someone who looks like you can then soften into like, whoa, actually maybe I am willing to have a new experience of this snag, this man, wherever we want to talk about <laughs> it. And I reject that, you know, like we don't need that. We, we don't need that acronym. I don't think. Um, but um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm uh What's coming up for me right now is, you know, we spoke earlier about the inability to convince um, with the intention of convincing those who are closed off to certain ideas. And then, you know, you also, you carry from my perspective, um, an extremely you know, positive view on people in the world and, and what we can transform into um, just from having read some of your work and speaking to you now, you know, but when, when I look at kind of the global scene right now, and I think about the inability to convince those who would listen to this conversation and immediately write it off. And there are probably, you know, Bill, maybe billions. <laughs> uh, greetings to you all if you're still listening. I'm glad that you're here. Um, I'm just like thinking of, you know, I'm thinking of our president, you know, and, and the people who, who love him. And how, I mean, how do, how do we move towards this, this idea of, of living with the, the dichotomy dichotomy or the paradox of, of, of um, diversity and unity when, you know, there are, there is so, such a strong force rising or that has risen for 
um, the concept of separateness and zero sum. So the way that I approach my work is just this constant, it's like this taproot energy of just like, what do I fundamentally know to be true about the world? Even if I haven't seen evidence of evidence of it in a while, right? Love is the only real thing. Unity is the natural state of humanity. This was the garden of Eden. We can bring it back. Um, this, <laughs> this sense of what is really true so that I'm not in this boggling mind logic debate about like, well, should we really try to all respect each other or should we just like let each other go off our separate ways and all die separately in the apocalypse um, in our own, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in our own separate little containers, right? Happy with each other. Um, I know that separation doesn't get me where I'm, where I want to go. I know that separation just becomes more and more and more and more and more fracturing where it's like more and more and more subgroups. And so I hold the intention of unity um, and it's this, 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 this art of mastering, looking at the world as it is right now, but staking a claim to how it could be. I really believe in the power of intention because what's trying to come through is, is, is important. So the question of how do we hold this vision of unity when there's such a strong argument for separation, um, is, knowing what's true about the world, knowing that unity is our natural state, which is why we're so enraged by separation, right? And knowing that it's not about getting to a place where we all have to, you know, all of this like specificity of best practices and you need to talk about it like this and you need to use this word. All of that is external moving around pieces on the chessboard for the emotional experience of feeling like someone is looking at you and they hold no fear, no shame, no disgust, no anger, no malintent in their heart towards you, right? And so it's this like, well, if you call me by the right pronouns, then I can trust you. But then even when people are calling people by the right pronouns, they still feel uneasy because they still haven't resolved this tension and this friction that they feel about fully witnessing someone and seeing them in their full humanity, no matter what the external trappings of their, their life might look like. Um, and, and I also want to add in here, what's coming through very strongly is it's not this like pie in the sky. We're all happy. We're all, you know, we're just like immediately going to this like utopian unity. Um, but it is about like, what is our ultimate belief and destination? If I believe that scarcity and separation is just what we have to deal with as humanity, nothing about my experience is going to change. If I fully commit to saying, I know that unity, I know that harmony, I know that being able to wake up and feel at ease and have my needs met and look around the world and see everybody else having that experience as well, I know that's what we deserve. And so I'm staking my claim to that. Um, I know that that's the only way that I'm going to experience even a measurable shift um, in my experience in my lifetime. I used to have this vision when I was a teenager. I was like, you know, I saw myself at 60, 70 years old basically in the apocalypse. And I was like, I'm going to be lucky if I have like a, a, an adequate weapon to defend my water supply from other humans. And now I'm like, by the time I'm 70, like, yeah, I've got a lawn chair in a healed and hold planet waiting for me. Like that's my retirement on this planet. We are okay. And knowing that by radically staking my claim to that, I begin to set in motion the events, the circumstances that allow that to happen. And often when we set a really powerful intention, you know, love drives out all that is not itself. 
And so we've got a whole lot of not love happening right now, which to me indicates humanity's deep, deep, deep desire to experience love because we're being shown, we're, it's, like, it's like food poisoning, you know, like we're being shown what's been hurting us as it's on its way out. We've, you know, never had such intense polarization before, quotation marks around that. That's a lot of people's experience right now. It's coming up because we're being asked to finally make amends for slavery, make amends for genocide, deal with discrimination um, so that we can show up on the other side. And, and the piece that's, that's coming through strongly as well is that love does not mean that we're BFF. Love means that I do not hold a hateful, fearful thought within my heart that, you know, that I'm not wishing you ill. But I cannot wish you ill from an extremely far distance as well. This is not about, you know, immediately just opening up um, and letting people who might hurt you into your life. It's about freeing yourself from the bondage of hating them and letting your life get a hell of a lot better really quickly um, when you do that and knowing that the ripple effect of that is going to change the world. Beautiful. I'm, I'm reminded of kind of the analogy of love as light. And, you know, if you have a completely dark room and a little bit of light shines in, how it really just can light up the entire space. Um, however, I'm also kind of, you know, I, I'm, I'm also just, just kind of internally conflicted. I want to go back to Marianne Williamson because you, you're familiar with her work. And she's also very, very outspoken about A Course in Miracles. I mean, I, I don't often talk about politics on this show, so I don't know why I keep coming back to this. But I'm just curious, like, would you vote for Marianne Williamson as the president of the United States? Absolutely. And I, I had this little moment, my pause was, do I just say yes and then explain, or do I explain and then say yes? Um, but I feel called, (laughs) (laughs) I feel called to just say yes right now because she is that light in the dark. She is a completely, she has a completely new paradigm way of viewing politics. Even the people who are the most progressive do not see the world in the way that she sees it. They're mixing around chess pieces on the board. Their ego is really involved. Um, and they're not dealing with the core metaphysical internal cause of all of our pain, which is fear, which is acculturated, conditioned fear and an inability to look at why we're in this situation. And it's not just about like, okay, we need policies to allow, you know, kids from immigrant families to go to college. It's like, how about we clean up our collective psyche that says that those kids don't deserve to go to college? How about we clean up our internal psyche that looks at someone's race and immediately assumes their competency level. Um, and so I am deeply compelled by, by the work that she's doing. Um, I don't place, I don't place my faith in the future of humanity in existing structures, but I, I see her almost like in that, the first star Wars movie episode four, where, where they're going into the death star and they have to hit this precision hit. It's like, I, I, I honor her for going that far into the belly of the beast with what she knows to be true. I know that she's living her dharma by she's living the path that she was meant to live by doing this. Um, and I truly honor her for that. Um, and 
the way that she speaks about it is like we 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 the primary role of the president is not implementation of policy it's vision right and she carries such a high frequency of a vision of love and truly backs it up also and this is funny because i don't usually talk about politics these days either but i'm like given a pitch for marianne williamson but what i'm really giving a pitch for is hope and love and seeing love not as this cheesy thing but as like the most badass revolutionary frequency that can and will change our world um and so i really honor her for what she's doing um and and i see i'm also just not willing to tell a pessimistic story especially not yet this early in in the um in the process i'm not willing to tell a story of well that's just how things are gonna be you know these these like C minus politicians are just, you know, they're going to say one thing and then they're still going to fund genocide in Yemen and, you know, everything's going to stay the same. Like from a purely selfish perspective, I love the feeling of hope and optimism and determination a lot more in my own body <laughs> than I love being logical and rational and like, well, you know, I guess we're going to have to accept you know, 20% world peace, you know, over 20 years, and then 3% increase after that. It's like, I, I'm all in. <laughs> and I love that she's all in too. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, uh, I think the theme of this episode, and I might title it, I'm conflicted. <laughs> I'm experiencing conflict, internal conflict. Um, no, because, because again, you know, I, I, I did my yoga teacher training in 2014 um, the studio that I taught at had a, uh, a book of quotations and there was one page that I was constantly drawn to because we would, you know, we would do Shavasana at the end of class and the students would be laying down. It was kind of the ceremony at the studio that, um, you know, a quote would be read and then there'd be the ringing of the Tibetan singing bowl. And as a teacher, I would constantly just be evaluating this book and reading different quotes that inspired me. And there was this one page that I kept coming back to, and it was called Our Deepest Fear. And it was basically this poem within a, a broader book that I later discovered, like a year later, called A Return to Love by Marianne Williamson. And it just sang to me. And I would read it in class, and it would just like, just the energy that I felt in that room would just shift. Um, I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now. And the opening quote is, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, it is that we are great beyond measure. And I think she goes on to say something about it as our light, not our darkness that most frightens us or something like that. And yet, as someone that has that quote hammered into their head and has read that and shared that in her words with so many people and who fundamentally shifted his own life and own path, after reading A Return to Love, realizing that I was in a codependent relationship um, where I, I applied to the belief that two incomplete people could come together and create a complete whole rather than two whole people coming together and creating something even more, you know, than a complete beautiful love. Um, and made a lot of changes based on that fundamental shift in my perspective. And here I am with this person that I love running for president. And I'm just like, man, what are you doing, Marianne? There's a part of me that is just like, I cannot move past it because I'm, I'm just seeing her in a room with Vladimir Putin. 
And it's like, I just imagine like the hypnotist trying to convince the like grumpy grandpa at the family event that like he's being hypnotized and the grandpa's just sitting there arms folded with his chin down and his furrowed brow just being like, get out of my face, stupid hypnotist. You know, like how, you know, as someone that wants to fundamentally believe in the power of love in my own actions, you know, and own beliefs, I'm finding that I'm laughing at someone who's using a platform of love to come at this other side, which is this strongman masculine kind of like power politics that I think the the world we exist. And I don't think about it within the context of the United States. I think about it within the context of this global um, foreign affairs. Like I even posted on her Instagram, like, hey, Marianne, like, what are you going to do when you're sitting in a room with Xi Jinping talking about trade policy? Like, how is that, how is that going to happen? Because they're playing the zero sum game. How do we play the game of abundance and love and light in a world that still is defined by zero sum? I really struggle with that. And, and she's such a representation of this for me right now. I love <laughs> this question. Like on a human level, I'm just like honoring you for asking this question. First of all, that quote has been in my mind ever since I like since this morning, I knew I was going to be speaking to you. And I was like, of course, he's bringing it up now. So it's been it, it's 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 been in the ether. Um, and and I love that quote. And it's you know, she really speaks about like, you know, who am I to be amazing? It's a like, who are you not to be amazing? That's one of the one of the pieces that 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 I love there. Um, and for me, this is where I actually get very logical. What is the alternative? Is the alternative? It's like to me, it feels like staying in a relationship with someone who is not meeting your needs and is like kind of mean to you because you know you're not going to meet your soulmate for like five years. It's like or staying in a, or like literally like staying in a room that smells bad because like you're going to have to walk to a better smelling room. You know, it's like my, my radicalism used to be about like, you need to change. You need to change your behavior and you need to clean up your act and you need to understand that you're hurting people. Now my radicalism is belief in the power of love and a commitment to not shifting my frequency based on the external circumstances. Uh, Something that comes to mind over and over and over again these days is do not mistake your present experience as evidence of the present or forecast of the future. It is merely an echo of the past passing through. So seeing the ripple effect of what we're experiencing right now is not what we're choosing to experience in this moment. It's what we thought and felt two seconds ago, yesterday, five years ago, a hundred years ago. And so we're experiencing the collective effect of choices that are not aligned with who we really are. And then we're looking around and we're saying, well, I guess this is the best we can do from one perspective. I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but we're sort of looking at it as an, as an evidence of our limitation rather than looking through it with our amazing like x-ray vision and just saying, this is all a mirage. (laughs) Only love is real. And in the same way that if you've ever had an altercation with someone where you feel like they're being completely illogical and you're just like, no, I actually like, I need you to wash your dishes or even talking to a, and we won't, we won't do the hierarchy thing of equating global politicians with children. Also, 
we can unpack that and say, why do we see children as inherently weak and all of that? Because they're actually amazing. But in the same way that like if a toddler is temper tantruming and they're like, I don't want to go to bed. And you're like, you have to go to bed. Like you're a child, you need to sleep. Like the logic of my argument is solid. <laughs> it's solid. At some point tonight, you are going to be asleep because that's what needs to happen. Because that's what your body needs. All right. And... And even if you don't sleep tonight, at some point in the next few nights, you're definitely going to sleep because that's what you need. And we don't get into, we don't go down on the level and, and we argue and we, and we consider, wait, is it even logical that I asked this toddler to sleep? Oh, like, am I even in the proper authority to tell this being what it needs to do? Like, we don't go to that level of questioning the premise of the frequency we're holding. We're just like, no, in the same way that like in a bar fight or someone's been, you know, inappropriate to someone, you're just like, I need you to back up. And it's like, you're clear. You need them to back up. <laughs> you're in that frequency of truth of your reality and it's not compromised. And eventually what happens is either they leave <laughs> or the situation eventually shifts itself to reflect your vibration. The toddler's like, oh, and you look down and, and they're asleep. <laughs> or or the, the aggressive bro in the and the bar is eventually just like, okay, man, and leaves. And the whole energy of the bar is like, oh, like we have the catharsis and we feel better. Um, and so when I see her head to head with Putin, it's going to be gnarly in certain ways, but she's not like, it's like, is she not qualified because she's not willing to go down to their level? Or is she eminently qualified because she's no longer willing to be in that conversation? And where of course, she's going to make decisions. She's probably going to send people into, you know, troops, different places, right? If America gets attacked, she's going to attack back. She's still going to be in the current reality, just in the same way that you like still clean a house that you're going to move out of in a month. Um, you don't just like let it become absolutely disgusting and like ignore it because you know you're leaving eventually. She's going to deal with the current reality while also holding the vision of where it's going to be. And that's, and I say that with utmost confidence because that's, I know that to be true about her. And I know that to be true about my work and the medicine of A Course in Miracles, where it's like, I'm not going to turn away from the world as it is right now, but I'm not going to look at how it is as evidence of how it's always going to be. But I also honor the confusion of it because it requires us to be comfortable with our power. It requires us to believe in love. It requires us to have hope in a world that gives us a lot of evidence to not hope. And it's a little bit of mental gymnastics. Um, but in the same way, the last example I'll give is like, cause as I said, mental, it's like, we stay so mental. What if we drop into our heart when you're like, I just saw that person and I know that they're my husband or I know that they're my wife or like they broke up with me, but like, I just know, like, I love them. I'm just going to be here loving you. You go do what you got to do, but you just know, you know, like that guy in the notebook, I'm going to be here to scoop you up in the rain <laughs> when you're ready, when you come back. And <laughs> in this situation, we're all Ryan Gosling. Um, but we just, you have that purity of heart where you're just like, nothing logical can convince me out of loving you. And you just let it burn. I'm just thinking about that, that bar fight situation. And I'm just like, what if 
this, you know, like you step into your power and you're like, you leave and you get pummeled by the drunk dude at the bar, you know? And then you, and like, you've been an activist. Has that happened to you before? You know, oh, totally. have you walked into places where you've been aligned in that loving energy and just were taken down physically, mentally, emotionally? And how do we stand up from that? Um, you know, and continue in a place of love when it's like the, the, the vacuum of love is so um, violent energetically. Whew. And I got full body chills as I say this because this was my reality, right? I am an LGBTQ person. Those words don't necessarily super resonate as like a core identification for me at this point in my life, but it's true about my experience that I moved through the world as you know, out of the norm in terms of gender roles and my presentation and how people saw me. And I got attacked all the time. I had people attack me on the subway saying, are you a boy or a girl? I got, was, you know, harassed and experienced a huge amount of violence in workplaces, walking through the streets of New York City, like a lot of stuff happened to me. And it was actually that, you know, it it really, those situations are what taught me the alchemy of this moment where it's like, love does not mean not fighting back you know just we're just on the marianne thread right now and she talks about the love of a mother bear right who's like i'm gonna go to the mat to defend my babies right i'm gonna i'm gonna maul you like your life will be over (laughs) if you try if you cross this line and so it's like love is not again it's this breaking down of the zero sum wait do i have a concept of love that means it's transactional and zero sum so it's either like i give it and then it's kind of conciliatory Or like can love and the frequency of love. I mean, Jesus walked into the temples and flipped the tables and screamed at people, you know, because his love for truth compelled him to shake things up in that way because people were being taken advantage of. And so I am absolutely, I believe in, in taking the actions we need to take to take care of ourselves. I believe love looks differently in different moments. Um, And it is about that power of knowing that even if someone is attacking you, you know, A Course in Miracles says that nothing that is not love is real and nothing that is not real can be harmed and so, um, or can harm us. Um, So knowing that even in that moment, that person who's raging against me, if I stand up for myself, they they're not fundamentally they're not fundamentally able to touch what is good and true and real about me and them raging against me is just evidence of illusion in the world and is not um, which doesn't mean I don't take the threat seriously but it mean, it doesn't compromise my my commitment to seeing us um, on on the other side and yeah in that bar fight situation you know you can, you can defend yourself physically in a way that looks violent and have that be a loving action um, as well. Because what's the alternative just to let someone hurt you and like, no, you're not in your power at all. Um, So I get that. It's like for anybody who's listening, it's like, Ooh, this is a little bit of mental gymnastics in some way, but I always root back into like, what's the alternative? The alternative to not believing in the power of love in this situation is just, feeling like I'm in a random universe where like violence makes complete sense and will just be part of my experience forever. 
I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you for asking. I'm like, your inquiry is so it's, it's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, I, I feel, I feel like, you know, this has been a really powerful conversation. It's been one of the longer episodes that I've had. Um, there's so much more that I'd love to speak with you about on maybe we can do a follow-up one day. Totally. Um, but I do want to be mindful of your time and also attention spans. <laughs> um, we've already gone well beyond the seventh, the average seven second attention span of the human brain these days. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Aaron, for coming on. And, uh, I really, really appreciate you. And, um, I'm super happy that we connected. So thank you. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Thank you for, for your, your really open inquiry, like the willingness to ask questions that, that are about questioning the premise of logic that, that is what's familiar, but isn't, but, but, but doesn't sit completely well with you. So like diving into those paradoxes and, and thank you for using your, uh, your social media ascendancy to, to share, <laughs> to share these messages with the world. Oh yeah. I'm uh, thank you. Yeah. My social media. Ascendancy. <laughs> I love that. All right, brother. Well, um, that's it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and, and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. Uh, you can follow me on social media at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium, and Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Lookup Podcast um, on Facebook, so check us out. You can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out. And if there's any way that I can improve, please let me know. Feel free to reach out. If you have any guest recommendations, please let me know. Other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background, you know, this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support. I want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created. And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of the Look Up podcast. Yeah.